Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiadam Silongkomer, the host of this channel. Today, I'm here with Elle Hardy to talk about her book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Now, I think the title of the book itself is clear about what this book is trying to talk about, but it's a privilege for me to sit and talk with Elle here. And we are going to go deep into the aspect of Pentecostalism and how it is spreading over the world. So it's my privilege to welcome Elle to the New Books Network. Uh, tell me something about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, second of all, gosh, something about myself. Um, well, as you can probably hear from my voice, I'm Australian, um, but I'm kind of based between in the US and in London. Um, I'm, a, I'm a journalist. Quite interesting that you wrote this book. So what made you write this book? Uh, so a few years ago, I was working on a story in Waco, Texas, about um, what's called the John School Movement in Texas. It actually forms a chapter of the book. And um, I was spending some time with um, with people who ran a John School. So they're schools for men who are convicted of soliciting sex for the first time uh, because it's still largely illegal in America. And they're sort of put through a remediation course, a bit like if you get done for drink driving or something like that, you know, you got to watch some videos and listen to some people speak and, you know, sort of take a day off work. And, yeah, the, the people – that were running the course didn't really want me around, but they were letting me there anyway. And, you know, that happens sometimes, but I sort of figured out after a few days that um, it was largely because they took their inspiration to open the school from an Australian woman called Christine Kane. Um, she's very big on the kind of sisterhood circuit in the US. Uh, she's a Hillsong alumni. And uh, yeah, so they were kind of trying to pay something back, I think, to, to Australians or I'm not sure what it was. Um, and then I started reading about Christine and I actually did a story on her and found it quite interesting and, and then sort of started getting into the Hillsong stuff and and it was just sort of in you know interviewing some academics and getting my head around the scope of Pentecostalism that I realized how how big of a global phenomenon it is and something that I think has really gone under the radar in my profession you know which is fairly um, mainstream secular liberal journalism and and just speaking to various friends and editors it was something that they weren't really aware of either so I read a few good academic books looking at the global scope of the movement you know everywhere from the Koreas to Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and even in the West. And um, yeah, and I decided to do sort of a, a popular version of, well, a, po- a popular account, you know, a non-academic um, global look at the movement, because it was something that that I just felt hadn't really been covered. Yeah, I, I think that is also what is uh, an interesting aspect of this book uh, that you bring out the you know uh, leave uh, conversations and all of uh, all of those aspects which can be accessible by anyone and also you know through all of those conversations and all of those things that is going on you know we can really have have a grasp of what is really going on here. So going straight into the book itself. One of the things that I think needs to be also cleared here is the question of what is Pentecostalism, right? And to do that, I think I would like you to uh, talk about a little bit about the history of it. So, yeah. Sure. So, so I mean, look, the definition can be a little bit contentious. And, um, and again, I stress I'm not an academic. So I'm really looking at, at people whose 
Christian, whose evangelical Christianity is really centered around the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, so that really comes from that Pentecostal movement that started with um, William J. Seymour in 1906 in Los Angeles at the Azusa Street Revival, and um, and and you know really fanned quickly around the world. I mean, nowadays, um, so so I, I quote the the six hundred um, million uh, Pentecostals in the world figure, which has sort of been established by by Pew and, and some other researchers. So that combines the the Pentecostals and um, Charismatics, you know, particularly from the Charismatic um, Catholic uh, Renewal Movement in Latin America and others. But I mean, now particularly. In, in the United States, Australia, the UK, you get a lot of these big mega churches that are quite certainly Pentecostal in origin, you know, often were XAOG, Assemblies of God churches, um, that will now call themselves non-denominational. And to my mind, that is largely just a branding exercise. You just don't want to exclude people or, you know, um, Pentecostalism in, in some places, particularly in the United States, still ha- can have a stigma in some areas, you know, of of quivering and tongues talking and all of that. And, they, you know, and, and your hill songs and, and some other of those, you know, really big um, mega churches really want to, to you know, not so much be associated with that anymore um so so it is difficult but it but again it really is that um i'm defining it as as people whose evangelical christianity is really enhancing the the power of the holy spirit i think pentecostalism also has its roots so to say in terms of revival right and so can you also talk uh, say something about a revival here because again recently interestingly the in the asbury university there's a revival going on and you know it's a very big sensation among the christians and i think revival has always been something that has been always long by christians and also that has been something you know a kind of inversion in terms of how christianity kind of invasion the world so can you say something about the connection to revival here yeah Sure. So, so I think revivals have always been very closely associated with the Pentecostal movement, again, from starting with, with William J. Seymour and just fanning out. I mean, there were revivals, um, I think was it the Welsh revival was in 1905, so, so before Seymour's, and, and there was a great Pyongyang revival in 1907, um, and then, you know, fanning out to, to revivals really all over the world. And, you know, quite, quite a stunning phenomenon because obviously sometimes they were taking things and learning things from each other and hearing about this great you know um movement in the winds almost um but but other times there there isn't any great evidence of that you know some of these things did appear to be quite spontaneous and i do find that quite fascinating and um yeah look i I don't think revivals are as, as perhaps common now as they used to be and you know they've been if you think about the the prominent ones that i certainly know about in in north america in recent decades i mean there was the um, Toronto Blessing, very famously in 1994, where um, you know that that was a, a massive revival, and and you know people were um, quite famously making animal noises and things like that, and you had to get um, some of the really big Pentecostal leaders like like John Wimber just to tell everyone to to calm things down a bit. Um, and, and then, you know, Lakeland and, and some others in the United States. And, yeah, it just doesn't seem as, as much of a phenomenon um, anymore that, that we get these, but they're certainly very powerful events. And, and what's happening um, right now, and it seems to be um, – I've, I've been off reporting in Africa, so I haven't had that much time to have a look at it, um, what's going in, in Ashbury, I think it is. Um, you know, it seems to be very led by, by young people, and I find that, you know, a very fascinating, um, a very fascinating idea um, because 
because you know often we're seeing that that younger people are um, are engaging with with faith and religion less and less now, but I think there's certainly among those who who do, um, you know, that there certainly is some evidence now of, of you know becoming more fervent in their faith, um, and, and yeah, a revival like this, at, you know, a, a you know after what's been a very difficult few years, you know, where people weren't um you know people weren't allowed to come together and things like that um you know I think perhaps in in hindsight maybe we would do a revival um but but yeah I think it's uh, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon certainly something I'll be keeping an eye on and and you know seeing how these things will be traveling now I mean there's going to be a lot of kids there with TikTok uh people in other parts of the world um, going to be, um, you know, getting ideas from this. I, I think that's a really fascinating thing with how, how quickly these moments can catch on in other places now. So when we talk about Pentecostalism, obviously one thing that is very, I mean, that one thing that immediately comes to picture is the Hillsong. And I think uh, Hillsong has become a very big sensation in that sense around the world. Uh, so can you can you tell us something about the, uh, Hillsong and, you know, their branding of Pentecostalism? Yeah. Yeah, so Hillsong, I mean, is is a case in point. They were um, they they were assemblies of God, um, you know, for for as long as they were around, and and their um, and Brian Houston, the the found Brian Houston, sorry, the founder, um, his father Frank's churches, you know, had long been in assemblies of God as well, and they are now one of these churches that are non denominational. They call themselves one house with many rooms, but yeah, look, Hillsong has been an absolute phenomenon and really key to the 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 third wave of the Pentecostal movement or the neo-charismatic movement, as, as we tend to call it. And, I mean, what's really interesting is that they they really changed the business model. And, you know, this is coming from a place from my hometown of Sydney that, that you know, evangelicals and Pentecostals just aren't, aren't very common there. And, you know, they've always been fairly sort of distrusted and the mainstream media sort of never been very comfortable um, with, with the Hillsong phenomenon. But I mean, it's really taken off in in so many places around the world, and and they just really harness the power of music, and that's something Pentecostals have always been amazing at. But but they made very palatable, um, you know, music with with very credible production values. It sounded like something you could just as easily hear on your Spotify playlists, uh, uh, secular music, and they they really they really pioneered what what this form of Christianity can be for, you know, the late 20th and the early 21st century, which was that you can be a Christian in a secular world. You can have the good stuff as well. You don't have to go without, you know, they're no longer, Pentecostals are no longer, you know, sort of quivering um, pre-millennials waiting, you know, for the earthquake and, and Jesus' return. They're, um, you know, very forward-thinking, um, sophisticated people who are living, you know, who understand that they're living very much in a secular world and trying to live a Christian life. And, yeah, they, they don't want to go without the good stuff. They they want to feel good as well as feeling God. And and Hillsong was was amazing at that. And, I mean, they, they've just pioneered this model that so many others have imitated. Hillsong's in all sorts of trouble now. I, I don't think it will ever get back to where it was. Um, they've, you know, deposed the leader, He's on trial for, as Brian Houston, he's on trial for concealing his father's pedophilia. I was home in Sydney in December to cover that. Um, there is um, just, just beset by constant scandal. Uh, there's another couple of court cases going on that are going to be looking at, at money and cultural issues. 
and I just don't see Hillsong getting back to where it was, but but it really changed the the way that a lot of places did church, and and also now I've sort of become a cautionary tale. I mean, you know, they were famous for Justin Bieber going to worship at their church, um, for pastors like Carl Lentz, um, you know, becoming a celebrity and then having his own personal fall from grace. And so, as much as they they design the new model, I think that they really are now the cautionary tale and whatever the sort of, you know, next wave of, of this movement is going to be, I think it will be led perhaps by people who watched Hillsong's Rise and then learned some of the lessons from it. Now, when we talk about Pentecostalism, obviously it comes under the purview of Christianity. And also within Christianity, obviously there are so many denominations and there are still debates going on on all of those things. So I wanted to ask about uh, what are some of the movements that might have influenced Pentecostalism? Obviously, one thing that comes to mind is also the New Age movement. I mean, in terms of uh, the purview as Christianity as a whole, you know, Pentecostalism, the debates that are going on there and some of the influences that are there in, in uh, among in the movement itself. Can you elaborate something on that? Yeah, I mean, look, that that's incredibly complex. Um, I mean, first off, it, it really came out of the Great Awakenings in the United States and the movements, you know, that, that brought up um, Mormonism and and all sorts of changes in, in 19th century American Christianity. Um, so it certainly uh, came came out of there, um, but also the um, some of the secular movements at the time, such as New Thought, and that sort of rugged individualism, the Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, you know, and that really uh, went into you know the self help movement of the nineteen fifty with Norman Vincent Peale and and the power of positive thinking. His self help book. He was actually a think reformed Lutheran minister but but this book went on to have a profound effect on the sort of early prosperity gospel um, preachers who were largely within the Pentecostal movement um, also went on to have a profound effect on on a young guy called Donald Trump um, who was in the front row of, of Peel's sermons at his church in New York um, so so yeah look the, the, there's those things and then and then obviously the new age movement ha- had a really profound movement on the uh, so really profound influence on the, on the charismatic movement or the second wave of the Pentecostal movement so that was guys like uh, Lonnie Frisbee there's actually a new movie coming out about him uh, made by Kelsey Grammer that I think once again overlooks um, Lonnie Frisbee's homosexuality, he died of AIDS and, and was really abandoned and written out of the, of the movement. Um, but but that's, a, that's a bit of a digression. Uh, but, yeah, you know, this is the, the, the Jesus people or the Jesus freak movement in 1960s California where a lot of young people went up to the Summer of Love in Hyde-Ashbury, saw that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be and sort of returned to, to their Christian roots, you know, a lot of kids that might have come from the Midwest or just from, from pretty, you know, typical 1950s American uh, families that, um, yeah, wanted to, you know, have some sort of spirituality that, that they didn't get from the New Age movement. And, and that, you know, had a, had a hugely profound effect on, on Pentecostalism as we know it today. It really was, you know, the, the major part of, of, of the second wave of the charismatic movement. Um, and then, I mean, look, pick your influence as well elsewhere. I mean, one of the, the great things and, and one of the great themes of my book is how much the the movement looks and feels like the local culture. Um, so in Latin America, um, it's you know we'll take uh, you know many more cues from Catholicism and from traditional cultures and from you know some of the the um, 
imported cultures, you know, with um, with African people who came over in the slave trade. Uh, in, in Africa, you know, there's um, uh, Zionist movements, particularly in South Africa. But again, you know, we'll look and feel much more like traditional cultures have, you know, um, potentially, you know, undergoing spiritual warfare against um, against demons and spirits that, that appeared in traditional non-Christian African cultures. Um, and and so, so too in, in Korean cultures, you know, some of these shamanistic elements of, of their traditional non-Christian cultures. So, I mean, the influences are, are hugely profound, but... But yeah, that that is certainly a, a big part of the movement is is understanding that because there is no central authority, you know, anyone with a following can basically be a preacher, and so it does look and feel like the local cultures, and and that makes it more authentic to people. You know, it's it's sort of become apparent now that people don't want to be dictated from Rome about about how to do about how to do God and how to do their their faith um they they want it to to be something that that is more meaningful in their everyday lives and and to to look and feel and sound like their culture and and that has certainly been a very big part of Pentecostalism's rise now I think in all of this movement there's obviously a leader or few there are a few prominent leaders that has really envisioned certain movement and taken it forward and all these leaders have a background and and they have visions and you know there there's a place where they come from uh, and all of those aspects of a leader so can you talk about some of the prominent leaders in the Pentecostal movement um, sure. Well, I think two of the most influential figures of 20th century Pentecostalism are certainly John Wimbo, who came up in that charismatic movement out of California. He was actually in a band that was a forerunner of the Righteous Brothers, and, and I think he was there early on their manager um, as well. And um, and then uh, C. Peter Wagner, who was another American, but who spent a lot of his time as a uh, as a missionary in, in Latin America and in, in Argentina and Bolivia in particular, I think. And he really helped take some of Wimber's ideas on, um, you know, about giving the the people what they want, um, you know, in the here and now and power evangelism, as it was called. And then uh, so, so that was Wimber's real idea. But then Wagner was able to really sort of take that and, you know, sort of do the next turn of, of the wheel. And, and he brought back ideas from Latin America, particularly around spiritual warfare and, and you know, really understanding that, that this was the centre of, of Christian, the, the developing world is the centre of Christianity now. And that the, the that Western Christians had a lot to learn from the developing world, and also needed to treat it with respect and deference. I think, um, and he brought back to the United States some some ideas in Christianity that he'd gotten in Latin America. But then he was also, you know, very much a part of the. Uh, I mean, I don't know if terms exactly right but for want of a better word the sort of neoliberalization of of the third wave of the Pentecostal movement I mean I think that was just partially you know just the times and it was in the air but he was also very good at sort of creating some of the more corporate structures around um around Pentecostal movement that that we see now um I mean there's all sorts of other um really important figures as um, a Jim Macedo in, in Brazil, who um, is head of the, uh, Oh, universal church of the kingdom of God. Sorry. I think that's the, the right name. Um, uh, you know, who sort of almost single-handedly brought Pentecostalism to, to Brazil. There was a very small number of, you know, Protestants and things, but um, he was, well, he was converted um, and, and just really changed the landscape with, with his mega church in, in Brazil. And he's now a billionaire and, 
and just the the effects of that i mean I'm in London at the moment and you see United um, Church, uh, sorry, uh, universal churches everywhere. Um, they're also, you know, doing a lot of real um, heavy, heavy duty missionary work in Portuguese speaking countries in Africa, like Mozambique and Angola and places like that. Um, and then I think you have some of the the Nigerian leaders as well. Um, I mean, what's what's happening in Nigeria is is, is incredible. So Pastor um, Adeboye um, started the Redeemed Christian Church of Christ. Um, I think yeah, our triple C um, in the nineteen eighties, and you know put these um, put this huge mega church out on the highway. Um, the, the most travelled road in uh, Lagos and and Nigeria, um, and I think potentially all of Africa, just by by virtue of, of Lagos being being the really being the biggest city there, and you know putting this church out and understanding that you know people were commuting hours each day had spiritual needs as well, and now you go out to on the Lagos Ibadan Highway and it is just dotted with mega churches for miles. And, you know, traffic can, you know, there can be all day traffic jams when you go out there now because there are, you know, literally millions of people who might be out there at church at once. And just the revolution that that he's brought about in these, you know, the the way of, you know, West African Pentecostal faith, which is already pretty robust. And, you know, from there now we see um, a lot of West African Christians, um, you know, partaking in reverse evangelism. They're, they're, they're very big on, you know, the West brought us the, the good news. And now, you know, look at the West, it's falling apart gay marriage and all of that and and you know there is a real movement within nigerian pentecostalism among among others to re-evangelize the west um you know if there are churches opening in you know anglican churches and methodist churches and 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 whatnot are closing down in england every week and they're you know being replaced by pentecostal churches and they are by and large um immigrant and minority churches particularly from places like nigeria and so once again it really is where the energy of the movement is right now the subtitle of this book is How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Now, I wanted to ask about the approach that they take in terms of reaching out to different countries, right? Because I think trying to reach out with a movement to different places or countries or a foreign place is not an easy thing. It needs resources, but also at the same time, it's the sensitivity to the places, but also at the same time, it needs a certain aspect of, okay, how do we grab the attention of the people and, you know, how do we make this movement appealing and all of those aspects. There's certain form of method that they follow to make the movement appealing. So can you elaborate on this one? Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, the title is a bit um, facetious in a way. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, slightly slightly um, hyperbolic, and that's you know that that's just journalism and selling books. So so I don't really think it's taking over the world. Um, but but we we're just trying to be a bit provocative. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, it's difficult to say because once again, while there is a movement, there is no central authority. There is no one way of doing things. So so you really do get guys freelancing. I mean, I follow all sorts of people that, you know, just just guys who just fundraise on social media and who travel the world evangelizing. Um, there's a prominent American guy and a prominent um, British girl I follow who, who do this. And, you know, they can go anywhere and, and try to start evangelizing and, and you know, being, being sort of modern missionaries. Um, so... I, I'm very wary of saying that that there's anything deliberate or organised afoot because it can, you know, just again, it could just be one pastor with one idea, you know, a, a Nigerian pastor who's, you know, opened up a, you know, I think they're trying to open the biggest church in America and Texas, you know, that I think that's already happened. Um, so it, it is very difficult, but but obviously there are Pentecostals are very good at building networks. 
so within you know what can almost be considered a fourth wave of, of the movement now um the, the new apostolic reformation it really is all about building apostolic networks and they've been very global in reach just because you know these people go to conferences i remember when david yongi cho another really prominent um uh, pentecostal leader from um south uh, korea died a few years ago and uh, there was a prominent leader from Guatemala who put out, you know, a statement about mourning him because they'd become really close. And, you know, you don't traditionally associate Guatemala with South, South Korea. Um, so there, there's all of these networks um, at play. So, so, it, so it is re- very difficult. I mean, there are individual cases. There was some pretty hard evangelizing, I think, from some Americans and Canadians in Uganda about 10 years ago that sort of sparked a, um, a real anti, anti-LGBT movement and, and there was, you know, some doing some weird stuff around um, beliefs with AIDS. Uh, but, but, yeah, there isn't, you know, there is no one concerted thing because, yeah, it's a movement but there is no organisation within it. There's no membership. Um, so all sorts of people are reaching out in all sorts of places, you know. It, it's a real movement of, of, of migrants and diasporas. So you'll get, I mean, I did a story for The Guardian last year on uh, people, particularly from the subcontinent, um, who are getting converted to Pentecostalism in the Gulf states in the Middle East, you know, in places like um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, where, where you know, traditionally you think of, um, yeah, Christians are, aren't really welcome and, and certainly can't really practice their faith publicly. But a lot of migrants from, yeah, the Philippines and, and the subcontinent particularly are being converted there when they're workers, um, when they're, you know, have pretty miserable working conditions and and need some sort of spiritual nourishment to get them through. And then these people return home often to, you know, India and Sri Lanka and things like that and are opening up mega churches where I haven't had a chance to come to India yet, but it, it's quite a phenomenon there. Um, so, so yeah, you know, often it's people who are converts themselves who are who are going back to their homelands or something like that um, and taking the faith. So it's, it's really difficult to you know, put a pin in. But um, but we do know that, you know, the movement, the Pentecostal movement um, is spreading incredibly fast. You know, there's about 600 million followers worldwide and counting. I, I think there's, you know, pretty good evidence that's probably getting up closer to 700 million now. And there are estimates that, that by 2050, there'll be a billion Pentecostals worldwide. So that's one in 10 people in, in 2050 will we'll probably, you know, be be a part of the faith movement. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's certainly spreading a pace and, and not only through conversions, but it's also spreading in places that still have very high birth rates. Um, so places like Nigeria, um, Latin America and, and whatnot. So, so, yeah, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, quite interesting. You know, uh, the place where I come from, the particular state Nagaland, and from early on, the Nagaland is populated by the Baptist Christians. So in terms of the population percentage-wise, um, Nagaland has the highest uh, percentage of Baptist Christian in the world, actually. And so, and interestingly, early on, actually, it had really a significant Pentecostal influence, uh, the Baptist Christianity here, actually. And also at the same time, there is a wave of um, Pentecostal Christianity here, which is uh, kind of emerging very strongly in Nagaland. So that's a very uh, interesting aspect that you're talking about. Yeah, quite interesting. Now, one of the characteristics, so to say, of Pentecostalism, not essentializing it, but is the prosperity gospel, as uh, people call it. And I think this is something which people talk and debate about and all of those aspects. So can you talk something about this one? Yeah. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, it, it really emerged out of 
1960s America, so that that really flourishing consumer culture, uh, but also you know new mediums of, um, of of mass media. So it was you know preachers who were able to to tape sermons on cassette tapes and drive them around the country and then you know people were starting to own their own cars more and more and then so they could put it on and listen and then syndicated radio and things like that so so again it was really a product of its time and and pentecostalism has just always been amazing at grabbing onto the zeitgeist grabbing onto the new media from from you know its earliest earliest days in 1906 to to now you know social media there's there's some some sort of dynamism about it that that just seems to get this stuff quicker than a lot of other a lot of other denominations and faiths do uh but but yeah prosperity gospel is it's a tricky thing because i get asked about it a lot <laughs> um you know because people just think of you know someone you know running up to a rolex preacher and handing over their car keys or whatever um but but actual prosperity gospel i think that's fairly old hat um and so, so originally, I mean, there was a lot of that, you know, it's ideas of seeding, that if you plant a seed, then a harvest will grow. So, you know, if you give some of your, you know, if you tithe or if you give over a bit of your cash to your church and, and, and your pastor, that will, you know, hold you in good stead and God will reward you for your faith with your own riches. And, I mean, that that idea is still certainly prominent in, in large parts of Pentecostalism today. Um, there aren't, you know, that, you know, you think of some of those uh, American prosperity preachers, um, Joel Osteen and whatnot, and they're fairly rare these days, I think. Um, but, but um, you know, certainly in the in the developing world, prosperity gospel is probably more prominent. Um, you know, I saw a fair bit of it in Nigeria and Brazil. You know, they're just two huge countries and two countries I spend a lot of time in and, and have a lot of affection for. And, I mean, what, what we're really seeing there is, and this is the, the real underlying, if, you know, if there's one thing that we can put the growth of Pentecostalism down to, it's health and wealth. Um, it's people who, you know, uh, you know, spiritual people who really want their um, spiritual needs met and nourished, um, but also they, they want some help in the, um, in the material world, in the here and now. Um, you know, they want a good life in this life as well as the next. And it really has become the faith of the working poor. So people are looking to ideas like prosperity gospel, whether or not they're explicitly saying it so much now, just because it, it can have a fairly dirty name. You know, it all depends on the church and the area and all those sorts of things. But it's still very much in existence. And I think where we're really seeing the the wealth promises of Pentecostalism that, that you know, don't, don't really fall under the prosperity gospel name so much, but it, it's it's the promise of Pentecostalism is, um, and, and there's quite a bit of academic research on this now, is that people who join Pentecostal churches tend to get their lives together. And Pentecostals are really great at giving testimony. So you hear this a lot, you know, at, you know, sort of long services, there'll be people jumping up and telling you how they joined church and everything was fine. Um, but but you really see that, you know, people see it in their neighbours. You know, you're in a Brazilian favela, you're living cheek by jowl with your neighbours and, you know, someone starts going to church and maybe they stop drinking. And so, you know, maybe they're able to get a promotion at work and then maybe their kids are able to, you know, go to school for another couple more years and you sort of see a whole family circumstances uplift very quickly. Um, you'll also see things like, 
Pentecostal preachers sort of almost being a um, almost a mentor, a mentor figure as much as a pastor figure. Um, and so, you know, they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say to someone in their congregation, you know, you've, you say you hate your job at the factory. You've had this dream for years of opening up this, you know, fruit juice vending stand. You know, why don't you go for it? Everyone at the church will, you know, come and patronize you. And then so people start supporting each other's businesses within the church. So the sort of solidarity networks building. And once again, people tend to see an uplift in their in their circumstances. And so I think that's the that's the really profound thing that's going on here. And more important than than certainly prosperity gospel is these promises of prosperity that that come with with pentecostal churches and which which seem to be you know there, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence but but we're seeing a lot of a lot of research evidence now is that people are just getting their lives together when they go to these churches you know once again it's in you know some developing places some some pretty poor and desperate circumstances where there isn't you know the state services to help people out churches are the only game in town for a lot of people and um yeah pentecostalism seems to work now another one is healing i think healing is something which is very prominent in pentecostalism um, particularly and people have different reasons as to okay some people are really into it but then some other people criticizes saying it as a bogus and all of those aspects but i think healing is something which if a person goes through it or if a person has certain experiences of it it becomes very intimate to that person and i think that is an aspect of healing that is uh, really interesting uh, among any any religion for that matter and i think that is where i think pentecostalism also has the, this prominence on the aspect of healing so can you elaborate something on the aspect of healing yeah yeah so i mentioned earlier that health and wealth are the two things that are really getting people into the tent and and health is healing is certainly a huge part of that you're, you're very correct um you know traditionally pentecostals did it by laying of hands and and that's often still quite quite common in in services all over the world now um, and once again, there is actually some, you know, some research um, that, that has been queried by, by you know, people in the sciences. Um, but, but, you know, I found it quite compelling that, that came out of Mozambique of, you know, intercessory prayer, um, some people that were hard of hearing and, and you know, just some of the, the people, I believe they had science backgrounds, but they were of faith or I can't remember exactly what, what the study was. It's um, certainly referenced in the book. But, you know, to, just there, I interviewed them and their eyewitness accounts, and these are quite serious academics in the United States. You know, they were just saying that, yeah, something happened. <laughs> we can't exactly explain what it is. And what they actually found at the time, and I think this is in about 2014, was that they tried to repeat these experiments over Skype at the time, I think, um, and they found it had no effect. And I was sort of, I was writing this in the pandemic, you know, and suddenly all of our lives went onto Zoom. And I found that that quite powerful that, you know, maybe there is something, there is something in the whole village coming together to, to pray for a person. And, you know, it's not all, I've, I've seen a lot of showman mega preachers who have, you know, the people get up out of the wheelchairs and, and that's obviously all, all bogus. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, yeah, you can just, just pray your disability away for, for want of a, of a better word, but, you know, maybe there is something in, in a lot of people coming together and the power of the human touch. Um, I'm not a person of faith myself, but, but I did find the idea quite compelling. Um, uh, again, that, that might've just been hope during the pandemic when I just wanted to, to touch other people again. <laughs> um, but you know, um, I, I did find that quite interesting, but, but yeah, healing is certainly, 
um, a very, very important part of the Pentecostal movement. And I mean, look, it is everywhere, but but again, um, in developing places among the working poor, even in the United States, you know, where um, healthcare is just out of reach of a, of a lot of people now because it's so expensive. Um, there, there was a real turn to, to the Pentecostal faith for, for healing. Um, I've actually got a story coming out in the Guardian US in a couple of weeks about a very interesting Pentecostal group and, and the kind of people who were we're turning to it for healing, but um, I can't reveal too much now. But but I'll certainly post it online when it's out. But but yeah, we we do just see over and over that yeah, people people are turning to their churches for for healing for hope. Um, but but also there's you know another small element of health I think that that kind of goes under under discussed within the movement and that's just just churches again providing you know essentially becoming parastate institutions in large parts of the world you know south africa's falling apart at the moment has a very very pious um largely pentecostal population um you know nigeria has terrible state services you know favelas of brazil and and latin america you know these people are generally you know often the last in line um and just having a small healthcare clinic at your at your church, um, and, and and Pentecostals aren't alone in this, but but it certainly becomes again part of that that meaning that gets tied into people's faith and 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 gets more and more people in the tent as well. I mean, just having a small healthcare clinic on site, and you know, some some doctors who go to the church volunteering at it in 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 um, in Korea, um, that that was a really prominent thing in the the Korean megacostal. Uh, mega uh, Pentecostal mega churches in in South Korea were North Korean refugees were were going out to churches and you know there'd be a dentist there so he'd say oh okay yeah you're a you're a defector a refugee I'll I'll do your teeth for free um, because they had no other way of getting these services so I think that that is you know the more material aspect of faith as well of just having a place where you can get some stuff that I mean in my ideal world the state would be providing but in so many parts of the world they're not um, and, and yeah once again just building these solidarity networks giving giving people stuff in the here and now as as well as the ever after now i have a last question and that is related to pentecostalism and politics now obviously i mean in pentecostalism the spiritual world and the you know the physical world the worldly affairs is separated but also they also see that you know look at worldly affairs in terms of politics as something which they need to look after because obviously the judgment at the end time and then the politics is something uh, which will bring forward their so to say the spiritual agendas in that sense so i think politics is something uh, which is very important for pentecostalism and also at the same time they have a lot to say on, on all of those aspects so can you say something about Pentecostalism and politics yeah yeah sure I mean that that is a, a large part of my book so I guess the f- especially the first kind of half of the book is, is really trying to understand why so many people are joining this movement and the second half is looking at some of the the yeah that the the real politicization of the movement and and why I, I ultimately sort of say it's taking over the world and and probably not in the best way that I think it's it, you know it has been used for not good ends by some not not such good people um but but yeah I think there is a there has been a real confluence between you know sort of the populist right-wing movements that we're seeing around the world and Pentecostalism so um, you know even Viktor Orban in Hungary um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil Donald Trump in the United States um, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines they all were elected you know in on populist waves um, with very strong Pentecostal support 
Trump um, in the United States, and I know we're all a bit sick of talking about him, um, but you know, it's it's a phenomenon. And um, it was the Pentecostals who got behind him first. A lot of other evangelicals sort of weren't, you know, they wanted Ted Cruz or someone who was a bit more like them. Um, Pentecostals like Paula White Kane and a few other prominent leaders really got behind Trump first. And and there are a lot of prophecies and things like that. And and I really think that, that just because we keep seeing it being replicated around the world and, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of leaders in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, who, who have very close relationships with with preachers. Um, but what we've really seen, I think, is 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 two things. It's 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 the politics and um, it's the the style as well. So the style and substance behind it. I think just in terms of style, I mean, it is about you know being really good on stage. It's about stagecraft. Um, poly- uh, Pentecostals from the beginning have been great preachers. They're people, you know, it's the most charismatic guy in the village. You don't really have to have the educational qualifications. You just have to have a following and be good at what you do. And Pentecostals, you know, I always think about, you know, the Simpsons and like Reverend Lovejoy and everyone's sort of falling asleep. You just don't get that in Pentecostal churches because they wouldn't survive. Um, And so... So you do see leaders, you know, with a great sense of an audience's waning attention, how to make sermons snappy, how to make them relevant. I go to see, you know, I've been to so many churches around the world and and these are preachers that are, you know, talking about things, you know, in relation to to Facebook. And, you know, they're quite clearly giving a riff on, you know, um, not coveting your neighbour's goods and things like that, but but putting it into context that people understand and that people want to hear and, and you know, putting it into the, you know, vernacular. And I think that that's a really important part of it. And just, you know, making a show. I mean, Trump rallies are, you know, horrible and nonsensical, but people enjoy them. You know, they laugh, they're singing, they're fun, they're entertained the whole time. Um, and, and that's certainly a, a, a very important thing. But but I mean, also the substance of, or the politics, uh, why they're, they're really alighting. You know, Pentecostalism is, is very much about, what you're experiencing and what you're feeling rather than, you know, words in, in the good book. Uh, and that's very much, you know, what a lot of this populist politics is as well. It's, you know, we don't need your science. We don't need your vaccines. I'm, you know, I believe this because I feel this. And so we see a real a real merger of those two things. And I think, you know, more importantly, it is really about there is a movement both within a lot of you know not all Pentecostals but but within a lot of a lot of people of faith and within a lot of people on the you know sort of populist right for for one of a better world world worldwide that are feeling you know besieged by the secular liberal world around them you know that that this you know corporate sense of of everything being very woke now because you don't want to turn off potential customers of you know um you know, sports people taking a knee or, you know, making political messages like that. Uh, you know, a lot of people of, of of both the Pentecostal persuasion and the, you know, sort of populist right persuasion will, will mention these things a lot, that they feel like they're getting these messages from everywhere and that they are, you know, being sort of called dinosaurs and, and old-fashioned and things like that for having, you know, traditional beliefs for being against gay marriage and things like that. And, and that's where I, I certainly think that that some of these new populist right figures have really been able to gain a very strong foothold um, among among Pentecostals because of, of both of those issues of style and substance that I mentioned. So as a journalist, um, in the uh, few coming months ahead or days ahead, what are the things that you're going to do now? Yeah. Any plans? 
<laughs> well, um, I am. I, I do. I have a big story coming out in the Guardian soon, um, which I mentioned about a, a, a Pentecostal group in Arizona, which I think would be quite interesting. Um, but uh, and and I currently have a podcast out through iHeartRadio on the the sort of rise and fall of Hillsong Mega Church that we spoke. Uh, we mentioned earlier episode four just came out yesterday um so i think that that's pretty cool um yeah i mean other than that nigerian election is on tomorrow i'm not i haven't had the opportunity to go and cover it myself but that's one to watch and there'll be a a really huge role for some of the the big um pentecostal preachers in that um and yeah other than that um i don't think i've got any major anything else major coming out at the moment but um yeah you never know Thank you very much, Elle, for being here at New Books Network. I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation with you and, you know, you have really tackled the topics really clearly. And uh, as you have said, you you are not an academician, you said, but I think you have really explained the things very clearly. And the book itself uh, suggests that the way it is written and how it explores the lives of the people and history and all of those aspects are really amazing. And I think I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to really get a hold of that book and uh, go that that you will be amazed yeah thank you very much l for being here new books network that's so kind thank you for having me